0: So in 2014, um, New York Times best-selling author Sebastian Younger did a, um, a TED Talk on some research he had come across, and actually conducted himself, on a strange phenomenon that was occurring with soldiers who were returning back from combat. And the phenomenon was this, once these soldiers got home, they, they reported this almost insatiable and, and sometimes crippling desire to return back to combat. And so Younger's talk ends up being answering the question, how in the world could that possibly be? And he, and he begins by explaining that the context in which these men were fighting in Afghanistan were what you and I would call almost subhuman. Uh, these are men who had to wear the exact same clothes for a month while they were out on their missions, never taking them off. Uh, there were no cars, no internet, no, uh, no girls, no television, you know, things that you would probably think a young man could never really live without, Right? But in one of his interviews with one of these soldiers, Younger asked this man when he returned home, if there was anything he missed while he was, uh, when he was in combat. And the soldier's answer was actually almost all of it. And Younger goes on to explain that like, that's not that this man is crazy. He's not some kind of psychopath. He's discovered something that only a soldier can understand. And that is he stumbled across and experienced brotherhood. He has seen real connection, probably for the first time. And it was so powerful that he longed for even the terror of combat in order to experience it. So the question I want you to entertain before we launch into this this morning is, how how do you account for that? What could possibly be the reason for something like that? Because today we're going to conclude our study in the book of Exodus, where we've been asking this question about what it means to be the people of God. And what we find this morning is our Hebrews finally arriving home. Uh, They've come to where they're standing before the visible presence of God, where it was all leading to at this point. And remember that we said that this is actually where they belong. They're supposed to be here before the fiery and thundering majesty of Yahweh. Everything that goes on in Genesis, everything that happens through their travail through Egypt has been leading to this. But then all of a sudden, at the very end, we find a twist of something we wouldn't expect. And we find that this journey home is complicated, like it always is. <laughs> Look, I've been appealing to you all semester to try to put yourself mentally into the place of these Hebrew people. And my guess is that given the fact that we're in a sort of season of going home and celebrating with friends, we can probably agree with the fact That sometimes our desire to to go home, to experience home, is just complicated. Year after year, we hope that going home is going to be better than it was before, but we get disappointed. We feel like we look at the Facebook feeds and the Instagram posts of these picture-perfect families, and we want ours to measure up to it. But does it ever really satisfy? Can we ever truly feel like we are at home? But look, in our passage this morning, we find that the conclusion of Exodus unfolding for us gives us exactly what it means to truly be at home. Because, you know, as you likely know, we actually spend a lot of time in this church talking about part of our mission being that we want to be a home for people who have discovered this great hope in the good news of Jesus Christ. And that home is this thing that we call the church, And so there stands Moses in front of the tabernacle. And we learn a lot about the nature of home. We learn how complicated it is. But we also learn how to truly arrive, which are my three points this morning. Uh, The presence at home, the problem with home, and then finally the pathway to home. Those are my three points this morning. First of all, look at the presence at home. Like Clearly at the end of verse 33, you see sort of the punctuation of the entire second half of Exodus. It says it very simply. So Moses finished the work. I mean, you realize that it's been 20 chapters up until this time where Moses has been through this meticulous instructions God has given him to build this this worship center in front of the people. And so what do we find is the result of all of this mind-bending work? Well, the text is our guide. The result is something called a cloud, over and over again in our passage, the, the writer is fixated on the cloud. And you've really got to understand that this is a huge piece to the way God revealed himself in the Old Testament. Actually, the New Testament, now that I think of it. Because the cloud is the visible manifestation of God's presence. It's how you know that you saw that God was in your midst. And so the text gives us sort of three hints at what, how this cloud functioned in the lives of these people. The first one is this, it was a glory cloud. And I realize that the word uh, glory is not one that we use very much anymore in our day, so it might help to unpack exactly what the Hebrews were experiencing. And no better guide could we have than C.S. Lewis and his wonderful little essay, The Weight of Glory, where Lewis says that glory really can mean one of two things. It can mean renown, but it can also mean luminescence. What does he mean by that? Well, the first one is that it's renowned. Like, we can say that something was glorious when we see someone who is famous. You know, when someone experiences the, the adulation of a crowd, an adoring crowd, they would say they're basking in the glory, right? Uh, th- in other words, the Hebrews are standing there and they're in awe of what they see because it's God Himself. So I started digging through, trying to figure out if I've had any brushes with famous people. And I, I have a sad amount, like almost none. The only time I could remember was when my daughters and I were in New York many, many years ago. And as we were walking through Times Square, we literally ran into, like he brushed up a front, and I kind of bumped him, Martin Short. Now look, that was it. He bumped in me, like, oops, sorry. And he walked away and I was like, that was Martin Short. Now that's it. That's the sum total of my brush with greatness right there. But we still spent the next hour... Being like, I can't believe we saw Martin Short. Why? Because the second that you're in the presence of someone who is famous, it impacts you. It moves you. So what must it have been like for these people to be like, no, 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 that's God there. He is in our presence. Which must have been why the Apostle John got pretty freaked out about it when he said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as in the son, of, as in the only son of the from the Father. In other words, you can almost feel glory in that first sense. So the first thing was it was a glory cloud. The second thing that it was is was a beauty cloud, because we use the word glory to fi- to describe things that we find beautiful, or what Lewis will say, luminescent. It's something that that you love just looking at it because you're mesmerized by it. You find yourself staring at it because staring at it is its own reward. You know, it's not that you're looking to it for something that it'll give you because it's already done so by getting the chance to be looked at. Uh, look, men, think about your wife on your wedding day <laughs> or, or, or ladies. Uh, yeah, I remember distinctly, oftentimes after Ginger and I got engaged, I would look over in the passenger seat next to her and kind of catch her sort of looking down and staring at it, watching how the diamond would kind of cut up the, the light into all of its beautiful colors. Look. the point is this, we are, we call something glorious when we find it captivating. I do think there's a quick lesson before we move on, because I do think that it's important for us to remember that that is God's intention for his people to bring us into glory. What God wants for us is to bring a work of wonder that's mixed with astonishment and joy. And, And it's fine to admit that that's not the way that you're living at any given moment. But that doesn't mean that it's any less a goal in God's plan for the way he's going to mix the world, fix the world. And please don't forget that because it's going to be, hard, it's going to be more important for us to remember that fact as we move into looking at the, what the mission of this church really is. That in the end, we are bringing people into something that is altogether lovely. I think when you forget that, your ship is already sinking as a church. Thirdly, though, it's not just a a glory cloud or a beauty cloud. It's also a guiding cloud. We find out that the cloud was what guided them. In other words, it's not just there to amaze them, but it was there to give them very specific instructions on the paths that they were to take forward. Verse 37 says that they were especially careful not to move unless the cloud moves. What's the point? Well, the point was this was Yahweh that was among their people as the living God. He's not, that there was a commentator named Alec Motier, who I've been quoting all semester long, who says that God was not at their disposal. <laughs> he was there at his disposal. This is the sovereign God we're speaking about. So therefore God, Yahweh's guidance was not something they were looking for, but it's something rather they waited for. This is really important. So it was the Lord's business and not a matter of anxious care on their part to get their guidance right. All they had to do was rest, wait. And watch, keeping their eyes turned upward and fixed on their presiding God, he says. I and mean, I find that really interesting, mostly because if you're anything like me, when I typically start praying for guidance, I'm mostly praying for God to arrange the circumstances of my life so that, so that they benefit me the most, right? I'm looking for a path to my greatest happiness and my greatest comfort. But that's not necessarily the Bible's goal. Rather, I look to his hand to lead me where he wants me to go, which, and I realize this can be difficult to to think through, may very well mean that it's going to guide me into something that's going to hurt for a while, which is hard. But I do think it's the definition of maturity to say my life is in his hand, not my own. So what we find then is this presence at home is part of this glory cloud that we see where beauty and guidance are all emanating from him. That brings me to the second point, and that is that there's a problem with home, isn't there? (laughs) Because when you go back to our passage, you kind of come to this great climactic scene, right? Here's Moses, and the tabernacle's finished, and maybe there's music playing in the background or something as he approaches. The people are all standing around, eager for what the great prophet is going to say right before he leads them into his presence. And then we find out in verse 35, he can't go in. <laughs> He's hindered from being able to actually go in and experience the very thing that they were there for. You, you would be absolutely right to be saying to yourself, what, what do you mean he can't go in? <laughs> I mean, That was the whole point. That's why we got here. How do you understand this sort of weird series of events that all of a sudden they long for this presence, but that they can't get it? Well, we need to consider a couple of things. The first is this. The golden calf incident was actually still fairly fresh. And that whole episode played out as such a dramatic slap in the face to God's presence that Moses finds that he can't just go waltzing into the tent like everything's well and done. It turns out that God needs to reveal that there is a deeper problem yet going on in these people as they think about their own appropriateness as they go to God. And it's a big deal. Because what the golden calf incident revealed is that these Hebrew people, and us included, are a powerfully disordered people. They had experienced God's wrath there. Moses Moses was there to wait on God to invite him in. It was going to be an invitation that was on God's terms, not on his own. And so you get this whole ending, which sets the stage for the next book in the Bible, (laughs) the book of Leviticus, Because that's what the whole book of Leviticus is all about. That there are actually heavy conditions that need to be met before you go in into God's presence. There's got to be bloodshed and an innocent life has to be laid down. That has to be in the place of the guilty. We find out that there'll be statuses of cleanliness or uncleanliness that'll be introduced in order to help these people be mindful of just exactly what this God is like. But there's something powerful that these verses reminded me of that I want to sort of dive into about these people... About these people who are who are at home, but they're kind of not at home at the same time. You know, they have the tabernacle; God's presence is there. He's literally visible in their midst, but they can't go in—not yet, not fully. And granted, Leviticus is going to introduce you to all kinds of detail when it comes to how to enter His presence. But even then, you're still going to find that the presence of God feels—it feels that it feels beyond them a little bit. But I want to focus on that little concept this morning, because it's really powerful about like being in the Lord's presence, but not having the fullness of it. Because it turns out that that is a huge theme uh, that goes throughout the, the, the Bible and the New Testament, especially. And theologians refer to this theme by a handy little phrase that they call the already and the not yet. That's the phrase, the already and the not yet. And it actually takes a couple of exposures to really get what this concept's about. Uh, But once you grasp it, it'll help cure a lot of bad Bible reading as you do. And we can put it simply this way. The New Testament teaches that there are things that are already true of Christians. They're true now. You're saints. You're beloved. You're justified by God's grace. You're sanctified by His grace. In the spring, we're going to start a study in February through Ephesians, and we're going to find that you are seated in the heavenly places. In other words, there's a whole ocean of truths that have to do with your, your standing, your, your, your position before God. Uh, uh, things that things have to do with how you're counted in His eyes, your status before Him, and they are already true. However, we don't have the full enchilada, <laughs> It's not all there. Romans 8 says that we eagerly wait for the revelation of the sons of God, the redemption of our bodies. In Philippians, Paul is going to say, not that I have attained it, but I press on to the mark. In other words, Christians long for a future when we'll be made complete with new bodies and a new heavens and a new earth. But here's the deal. You have to keep the already and the not yet together. It's vital to keep these things, say, uh, these things connected. Why? Well, because someone comes to you, let's say, and they say, well, has Jesus saved you? The answer to that question is, of course, yes. Yes, I have. I, I've been crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. However, there is a sense in which I am waiting for the day to be saved. I, I still feel desire for sin. I, I, I still wound my conscience. I, I still speak out of turn. I don't fully act like the saint that he tells me that I am. Look, and all this is to say is, is it means that every Christian is living a life that's in between. With one foot in two worlds, there is a new man, no doubt, but that new man still has an old man attached to it, exerting what we hope, is an ever-decreasing amount of influence on the life. And what that means, and among other things, is is that the Christian life will be one of struggle. And the people of God will struggle in that regard. There's combat with the flesh. There's battle fatigue and weariness. There's an expectation that not one of us has got this figured out, regardless of how much posturing I do to make you think that I do have it figured out, right? Right? But look, if you don't remember both of these aspects of your salvation, you're going to miss why your Christian life from the very beginning. I mean, think about it. Like, if if you don't remember that you haven't already, you're going to be quickly discouraged about your lack of progress in the Christian life. But but if you don't remember that you're not yet, you're going to get proud. And you're going to erode our ability to have community. Want to know why? Because you're really hard to be around. You know, when Ginger and I were shopping for our present home, we found it interesting that the developers were careful to to stage all the houses that we went and looked at uh, with beautiful furnishings. I'm sure there's plenty of realtors in the congregation right now that'll tell you the power of doing as much. <clears throat> and if you're doing, and of course, it's, it's as if you're doing whatever you can to make it look w- w- that what's going on inside is better than what it actually is. But here's what's interesting about having a home staged. The staging of a home shows you its potential, doesn't it? You want to get in there and you want to beautify it yourself. So you purchase the house and you step up into what was picture for you when you were shopping. In other words, God has already staged our house with beauty. (laughs) Only it's not fake furniture. It's real, just not realized. That's the uniqueness of your identity. Now look, there's a lot of applications that we're going to get into in the spring when we talk about this already and not yet thing a whole lot then. But, but it occurs to me that this really demonstrates to us a potential problem that I've been kind of worried that I have with our home lingo as we talk about it in our philosophy of ministry. Honestly, there's times in which I worry a little bit about what we all mean when we say that we want Christ prayers to be a home. Why? Well, because think about your own home. Like A home is something that you own. It's for you. Uh, You know, when someone's coming over, you get frantic to make sure that, you know, nothing's messed up and then you meticulously clean after they leave. Why? Because home, in that sense, is exclusively for you. So do you see where the problem comes? That's the opposite of what Yahweh is building here in this tabernacle. In in other words, Yahweh's trying to sort of create this sort of launch pad from which God's restorative world in the whole universe is going to emanate. And so any use of the word home in that kind of context needs to describe a place where attending is not some kind of retreat from the problems of the world. That is not what we mean by home here. And if we do, we're sunk. But rather, it describes broad doors that extend welcome, hospitality, (laughs) to all of those people who come in wanting restoration. Yes, we're a home, but we're a unique home. Not, one, not a place where I hide from the world, but where I invite the world in to experience this, you know, this terrifying presence of the living God. Look, I, I really do have a suspicion that we are collectively as a group going to be tempted to question God's calling in the months after we move into that new building. You want to know why? Because we're going to get there and quickly find out that there's a lot of responsibilities that that building is going to ask of us in addition to the new opportunities that are going to tax us in some ways. It's going to grate me in some ways, but it's going to be our new home. <laughs> and what kind of home we're building has got to remember the already and the not yet. It has to, because Christ's presence is trying to be faithful to proclaim who we are to Oxford. But we are not yet what we will be. We are a fledgling, sinful, broken group of people who happen to spend a couple million dollars to build a house. Why? Why? so we can call other broken people to ourselves and show them where we found hope and home and healing. That's what we're doing. And if we lose that, we've lost it all. So there's the presence at home. There's that problem with home, the already and the not yet. But then finally, there's the path to home. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a daunting task. We should be going into the building next year soberly. But how are we going to be capable of that is the question. It occurred to me as I was doing this that the whole book of Exodus is the answer to that question. And I started trying to sum up exactly what we've learned through this study. And I came up with four things I think that we've drawn that are the answer to the question of what the pathway is. The first one is it's shown us that Exodus has shown us that there is a return to the Garden of Eden, hasn't it? God's agenda is to fix the world through this broken and dysfunctional people. And when you bend your mind around that, you realize that this ending is incredibly dramatic. God has shown up to sort of fix his people. Eden has returned. And the tabernacle, chapters 25 through 40, are all about the details with the cherubim and the, and the palm trees on the veils. God's saying, I've come back. I've landed again to come and bring a fixing to this broken world. And I've built this portable replica of the Garden of Eden to remind you of what I'm doing. And then you follow the trace of how the tabernacle becomes the temple and how the temple becomes Jesus and how Jesus establishes a community of the church. You are the portable Eden. (laughs) That's what's being built out there. That's what the community is among us. It's God's way of saying, I'm coming again. I'm here. My presence is among my people. Secondly, that we've learned that salvation is of the Lord. (laughs) I mean, was there a more consistent theme throughout this, that these enslaved people, in order to get out of their predicament, it certainly wasn't going to come by any virtue in them, like at all. Uh, Salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. The only thing you contribute is your failures. That's what these people have done. You just have to be silent and submissive and to remember that we live our lives Godward. Third thing we discovered is the depth of the problem, did we not? (laughs) I mean, each and every time when these people of God fail, we're told that our problems are deeper than we know. We we, we don't trust ourselves here. Humility is, is our common attribute. And look, I realized very quickly that Southern Christianity has a way of working against this, does it not? Because there's a real sense in which many people will join a church in order to keep from ever being thought that they were sinful. (laughs) You ever thought about that? Well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm a member at Christ Presbyterian Church. And suddenly that deflects the question of whether or not I actually have to be humble. My point is that it betrays Christianity's first principle is that there's brokenness on the inside. The problem goes deep. That leads me to the fourth thing I felt like we discovered, because over and over again, when you see God's determination to save these people... At every single turn, his grace gets leveled to a people that is utterly contradicted by their behavior. But I hope that you came to wonder, like I was hoping that you would, if that wasn't the point. That the point of seeing these people's constant failure and the misery of these people at the salvation he's formulating is to show that the salvation he's bringing is not fragile It's not hanging there in the balance with our fingers crossed nervously, wondering whether he's going to bless his people. It can't be that way. There's certainty here. So there's Moses standing there in front of the tabernacle as if God is looking at him and saying, you cannot see my face and live. Which is why week after week I have fast forwarded us to Luke chapter 9 where Moses does stand in front of God himself on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Elijah of all people. And as they're standing there, do you remember, and this little detail came out, as they're standing there, do you remember when Peter looks up and says, Lord, it's great that you and Moses and Elijah are here. Maybe we should build three tents for y'all to stick around in. And the little passage says, he didn't know what he was saying. (laughs) What's he saying? There's a commentator, Tony Morita, who says this. He says, Jesus was about to lead the ultimate exodus through his death and resurrection, and the disciples didn't understand it, because they thought there should be a tent of meeting for each of them. But the father said, you don't need a tent. You need to listen to my son. He told them they were dwelling with God in Christ. You were the dwelling. So look, this is my last application in the book of Exodus. It's simply this. The more disconnected you are to the people of God, the more disconnected you are going to be to God. The book of Exodus is screaming on every page that God is most vividly going to manifest himself in his people. This is your heart's true home, sitting here among these people who've committed themselves to you. I just can't help but think that there's quite a number of people who would bear witness to this fact of how dreadful it would be to face life without the community of this people in their lives. I bet you many of you would say that. You know, during Sebastian Younger's time when he was in Afghanistan, he was interviewing a commanding officer who was telling him about the only time he ever cried in Afghanistan. Apparently, his company was lined up along a ridge and under attack when a young man sitting right next to him was struck in the head by a bullet and was knocked out cold. Well, his CO and the man himself thought that the guy was dead. But, you know, after a while, he kind of sat up, kind of dazed and confused. But ultimately, he was okay. And of course, the reason that his commanding officer excused himself a couple hours later after the battle was over to cry for the rest of the afternoon is because I first realized in that moment that I couldn't actually protect my men. And suddenly he realized, I love these people. I love these men. I would do anything for them to keep that from happening. Look, While people are on the battlefield, they're united around this common purpose, aren't they? Like they're giving themselves up. And they give themselves away just for each other. In other words, what they've achieved is what we would call true brotherhood. Real community. So by the time they go back to their real homes, they don't know who they can count on. They don't know what's expected of them, and they find it terrifying. Younger ends his TED talk with this line. He says, war is easy compared to alienation. Hey, look, you want a description of the commission that's given to us about what it means to be the people of God? There you have it. The war is easy compared to the isolation and the loneliness of life without God and without the way in which he has manifest himself present in the church. Right here. And if our prayer for our congregation is anything less than that, it just feels like we've missed it, haven't we? Presence of God among his people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then would you manifest yourself in us. Father, it may be through a simple smile. It may be through a hug, a simple pat on the back, a handshake, a face that lights up in joy to see someone. Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul commanded us to greet one another with a holy kiss. Father, though we don't kiss each other necessarily anymore, we do find ways to let other people know we're glad to see them. Because that welcome, that welcome is pictured by each other to this place. Father, no more place is it more vividly pictured than at this table. Because when we come here, you vividly show us and tell us exactly what it's like to sort of know your presence. Would you draw near to us then? Or we ask it all in Jesus' name.